0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors. Books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. There are many ways to enter hell, not that many ways to emerge yet jason green gently beautifully takes our hand and guides us from the unspeakable death of his two-year-old daughter greta from a shocking random accident as greta and her grandmother innocently sat on a park bench outside an upper west side building and he takes us to the birth 15 months later of his son Harrison. In heartbreaking and heart-filling language, he teaches us that grief and love can be synonymous, and we too emerge with a palpable understanding of these words from Dante's Inferno. To get back up to the shining world from there, my guide and I went into that hidden tunnel, and following its path, We took no care to rest, but climbed, he first, then I, so far. Through a round aperture, I saw appear some of the beautiful things that heaven bears. Where we came forth, and once more saw the stars. Once More We Saw Stars is the title of an exquisite memoir by our guest, Jason Green. Jason. Welcome to Just the Right Book.
1: Thank you so much, Roxanne.
0: Uh, Jason, so you have done a number of interviews, and I'm very uh, grateful to your willingness to have these
1: conversations,
0: to have written the book. But I thought let's begin by meeting Greta and her grandmother.
1: Okay. Um, Well, Greta was born in 2013 she always had this weird sense that she was laughing. Um, and that was, you know, it's hard to tell with a baby. They're just babies. You know, yeah. they have they have this sort of sense about them that, you know, you're kind of projecting a lot of things onto them about what kind of personality they might have. But there's always this sort of sense you have about, about your child. And Greta always seemed like, she understood that things were funny. And we didn't know how to put it better. I like remember, goofy funny? No, like sly funny. Sly. sly like, <laughs> I mean, I mean to put a really fine point on this, the first picture I took of her when she, you know, in the hospital, minutes after she was born, she's got her lips pursed and she's smiling. And it was just from then on. And all the pictures she took, she had this look in her eye, like, mm, this is all pretty funny. <laughs> she just seemed very wise. And um, in a way, that's hard to define. Um, she was very emotionally intense and i don't mean that to say that she was like um volatile or anything because yeah. she was i mean toddlers are by nature they're toddlers they're volatile yeah she had this sense that she would just really stare right into you i don't know she had these blue eyes and they were the same as, as her mom's same eyes and they were just startling to make eye contact with i mean and people sort of said whoa you know what, what's going yeah. on with that child and you know and we, we felt the same way about her she talked real early. Um, there's even a joke I make in the book about how early she talked because um, we wanted to get her a dog, but we, want, we, were not, we were not incredibly eager to like have a dog and a baby at the <laughs> same time in a fourth floor apartment and, and all you were that stuff. And already
0: working hard. And, and both and... of us were working. Yeah. So we
1: were like, we had this sort of pact that we would wait until she could say, I want a puppy in a sentence. And we thought that's going to be forever. And then it was 14 months. She said, I want a brown puppy. And we were like, oh boy. Okay, well... <laughs> You know, first of all, we were like we revealed ourselves to be liars. We said, "Okay, well, now we're making a new sentence. And it's going to be twice as long." <laughs> uh, and she just had this and this verbosity that was astonishing. Verbosity that was astonishing, and it, and it just developed from there. She and her grandmother were really close. Her the, grandmother's name was Susan. She and and her grandmother Susan Stacy's mother were were incredibly close. Stacy's family is unusual in that none of them were born in New York, and that, but basically, most of her nuclear family lives there now. They're they've resettled. It's a complicated story that would be a whole other podcast. But they, here they are. So Susan lives on the Upper West lived Susan lived on the Upper West Side. At the time, and we lived in Brooklyn, so not close by New York standards, <laughs> yeah, a couple miles, really. It's kind of funny, but that but in New York that those miles can seem like a a, a long a, trip, an, <laughs> an epic journey, a long trip. But nonetheless, we made it often. We made it often because and she would make it as well. And just because they clearly loved each other so much, and particularly as she got older, we would drop her off there. Even though it was this long subway ride and complicated journey, we would drop her off there because the two of them had this whole relationship that we did not have. Mm. I mean, they were... They had that great relationship that your grandparents sometimes have where it's completely separate. Like, they had their own rules. Greta asked for things from Susan that she never asked for from us, like, almost like they were her secrets with her. Mm. Um, they had their own routines and their own things they did. She knew the doorman in the building and they would go say hi to everybody. They, she, this whole life, she was like that children's book, um, What's the Name of the Pig? Is it Eloise? What's the name of yeah. that pig? But yeah, who grows <laughs> up in the New York City apartment and knows everybody in the building. I felt like Greta was living that life with her grandmother. Yeah, And so they spent a lot of time in each other's presence. They had sleepovers a lot.
0: Right. And this one was a sleepover to to give you and Stacy a little bit of a break and Greta was excited
1: oh yeah she was uh, excited to get her
0: up there and then you get this you you realize you missed a call uh from Susan would not like her text you have this you know what must be incredible ride uh to the emergency room it was at uh Wheel Cornell And you get there, and Susan's also hospitalized.
1: Correct. Yes.
0: And now I forget in the book, do you get to, you talk to her right away when you get to the hospital?
1: Not right away, because she was in another corridor. We knew intellectually she was somewhere, but she was being treated.
0: She was also hit.
1: She was hit in the legs. And her legs were, were. By a second brick? Yeah. Yeah, another chunk of brick. So we did not see Susan at first. We saw Susan later. How much later? I. This is going to sound, well, perhaps it won't sound strange. But that time exists in such a uh, haze that um, mm. when I wrote it down in the book, I had to consult everyone in my family to sort of piece together a timeline. Yeah, And the only place where I know that information is correct is in that book. If you ask me, uh, uh, well, when did you see Susan? After I still can't tell Who you knows? exactly. At some point uh, after discovering that Greta had been struck, after seeing her, after they probably after they took her in for a CAT scan to discover the the extent of the damage, the damage to her brain. Uh, at some point in there, Susan was wheeled out in a wheelchair, and then we were together after that.
0: And you talk about how a bubble forms around these d- describe that because the language you use in the book for how the bubble reforms and mm. breaks up was really enlightening to read about how that falls apart and comes back together. Could you mm. describe that?
1: Yeah. I I mean, so during that time, even when we were in the hospital and we knew that, you know, this tragic, awful thing had altered our lives and we were reeling from all of it, um, there were still moments where there were funny things happening. And that's really impossible to explain. And it's hard for me to even sort of contend with that reality now that we're not there. But I can remember specifically you know, that there were these weird moments of misunderstanding or confusion. And they just come up in any situation. They come up in a hospital all the time. Um, you know, bureau- bureaucratic mis- idiocy or failures or like me being confused because I'm tired. All these things that happened. And we found ourselves— Not to mention unraveling. Unraveling, <laughs> right? Exactly. And then there are moments where we found ourselves laughing. And, we, you know, that, I remember thinking about that when I was trying to recreate it and marveling at how dark and how odd that was. Um, and the only metaphor I could think of was that. I, I, um, the way that sort of the surface of reality keeps reforming, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I don't know that I, yeah, I mean, an example would be that um, we were all sitting around the day after we left the hospital, after Greta's body had been delivered to surgery, and we, we said goodbye to her. And uh, Susan went home. Yeah. Um, and we're all sitting around, and we were laughing, remembering this story. Where, um, and it's too convoluted to retell, and probably not that funny to anyone else who wasn't there. But uh, there was a point at which I was so confused by who was in the hospital and who was coming that I sent my brother-in-law to go wait for himself. <laughs> right? You know, and about 10 <laughs> minutes went by before we realized he was sitting there. We thought he was waiting for his uncle. And then we realized, oh, you know, <laughs> no, he's so, waiting for himself. He's waiting for himself. And so we were laughing about that. And then somebody made a mention of Susan. And then we all remembered, oh, God, Susan's at home alone. And oh, yeah. God, this just happened. And oh, my God, Greta's gone. And, you know, and then and then instantly we would all be grief stricken and traumatized again. And then somebody would glance down and like, you know, see the dog peeing right near their foot. And we'd all start laughing again. It was just it was this weird sort of back and mm-hmm. forth. And I found that that was a very common feeling in the tragedy that like we all experienced that and to some degree.
0: And and Jason, when, it, you know, you talk a little bit about religion or spirituality mm-hmm. or faith in in the book what role did that play you didn't neither you nor stacy came from a particularly religious background do you wish you had been religious or wh- what role did all of that take as you dealt with the aftermath of her death
1: i don't think either of us um wished we'd been religious per se i think mm-hmm. we both wished we'd had a more developed vocabulary in our lives for these sorts of questions about you know what is what does it mean, you know, in the ultimate analysis, that you know life ends, and what does death mean, and what does it? Well, I mean, no one knows what it means, but what does it mean to us? I, I, I don't. I certainly don't. I mean, um, I grew up in a pretty secular sort of human. My mother told me in second grade, if any kids asked me what religion we were, second grade, mind you, I should say that we're <laughs> secular humanists. Okay. That that, that went over great. <laughs> That one over great with my. Everybody
0: na- understood like where that church or synagogue was. Yeah, for secular the secular humanist,
1: <laughs> humanist temple of uh, of Western New York. Yeah, yeah. My, my my neighbors, the Gideons, really understood that one. Yeah,
0: that's pretty funny in a story all by itself. Yeah,
1: and Stacy, um, her family grew up in an evangelical Christian sort of neighborhood, and they were, I mean, so th- whereas I was just sort of not religious. It was just an activity that we didn't do. You know, we were not religious to me in the same way that I didn't play, play baseball. I didn't. It wasn't the lifestyle. Yeah. Stacey's family was more, we are the not religious family on this street, on this block. And it was more oppositional for them. Um. So both of us came. Oh, that's
0: an interesting comparison.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, Stacy put a Darwin fish in her windshield of her car in high school, <laughs> sort of to say, screw you, you know. Uh, and her mom was like cheering her on because they had this sort of, Defiant sort of attitude towards the prevailing norms of their neighborhood at the time, yeah, where was that? that was in um in Virginia mm-hmm. um, outside of Richmond. Neither of us really wished that we'd had that religious background we didn't have i mean, i I didn't, for instance, say when Greta died, oh my oh, oh no, i I, I don't have a God. How am I supposed to make sense of this? I do think some people probably do feel that. I just had a yearning to connect with her um in yeah. some way, and it started that way. It was started with a very pure yearning, and that led us to unconventional or unusual for us experiences. We were open to anything, and that was sort of our our mindset as we went about trying to make peace with her death. And that meant doing things that we would never have done if Greta was alive. We would never have gone to a workshop where there was a medium channeling the dead. We would never have found yeah. ourselves there. But once we did, we didn't turn away or recoil from that experience, and we also didn't We didn't worry about whether or not we, quote unquote, believed in what was happening because Mm. it was clearly provoking profound emotional reactions in the people there and in us as well. And I think we both learned something really interesting about our about belief, at least as how it related to us. Like belief is kind of a decision that you make. It happens Mm -hmm. in, you know, you sort of decide to believe something. Um, But feelings are sort of this sort of amorphous sort of thing that happens. And they can push you towards all kinds of belief systems, you know. And and you you can either acknowledge that you had this feeling with this medium or you can try to turn it away. But we desperately wanted to feel connected to Greta. So it didn't matter to me what the delivery system was. If it had come.
0: Or the structure, the construct of it. The
1: construct. It didn't matter to me at all. If it had come from the Torah, I would have welcomed it. If it had come from the Bible or the Quran, we would have welcomed it it we 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 stumbled right. along this particular path that we found seeking connection. and I think that that's ultimately, I mean, not having studied any of the religions made uh, in any detail. it seems to me that that's the takeaway of any of them anyway. So really, whatever you found your way whatever allows you to tap into that sensation is what you need. I, I think that. We kind of became spiritual rather than we were probably already spiritual rather than religious in the sense that we we believed in certain amorphous things, but we were forced to really embrace those ideas much more fully when Greta died.
0: Yeah, and it, here's the thing that was really striking to me, Jason. I, I want to come back to when you first encountered Greta after she died in the park. Mm. And I'll come back to that. But I want to jump to Kripalu. So you went up mm. to Kripalu, which is in New York and is a yoga retreat.
1: Massachusetts, actually. Oh, it's, it's Ma- Stockbridge, oh, oh, Massachusetts. Oh, that's
0: right. uh, Kripalu, that's a yoga retreat center in Massachusetts. And there was a class for grieving people. It wasn't clear. What it, they weren't necessarily people grieving the loss of a child. It could be a parent, a spouse, or whatever and there was a scene in in there or that you describe where the instructor for that segment had assigned everybody to write a letter mm. to the person uh, that had died and you wrote a letter stacy your wife read a letter and the next day you show everyone shows up with the letters mm. and the way you write that where Stacy knows that you're going to want to read the letter mm. and she's not going to want to read the letter was a stark reminder to me that of course you and Stacy would grieve differently right you would have a different mechanism yeah. you were going to want to read this letter and we're going to talk about what happened after you read that letter but how did you and Stacey navigate that you would need each need a different process? Did you overtly talk about it? Did you allow each other the freedom mm. to explore your own way to grieve? What did that look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think that Stacey and I, in the beginning, we we just gave each other space. It was a sort of instinctive thing. Um, and then, yeah, we started talking. We did talk about it. We talked about the fact that we knew that we might not need the same things. Um, I think the fact that we were both in such profound suffering, um, Mm. changed the way that we treated each other, um, probably for the better.
0: Which is not often
1: the case. No, no. I mean, and, and I was, I was aware of that even in the hospital that, um, you know, most marriages don't survive the loss of a, of a child. So Stacy and I, I mean, I think that the reality was we'd lost so much and we couldn't really contemplate losing anything more. So we held on to each other. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, all the problems that arise between two people, you don't see things the way I do. You don't, you don't communicate. You don't tell me what you're feeling in the same language I speak. Those are, you know, those are problems that send people into counseling. They're they're really tough. Yeah. They're really tough. Those attractive. are fighting words. Those are fighting problems, you know. Those problems when you're both grieving kind of change because you know at root that whatever Stacey is feeling, it's as awful as what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And you just become a little bit more. Com- I just became. You did. And, I she just, did. and she did. We just became a little bit more compassionate to each other um, and more patient than we had been. Yeah, um, because I've
0: witnessed mm-hmm. a different, you know, a different yeah. approach is I need to talk about this, and you're annoying me because you're not willing to talk about it, or vice versa. So, right, everybody understands their pain, but they sort of go to the corners
1: of with course. their pain, right? And I think that we were probably also quite frankly, lucky in the sense that what we needed wasn't so divergent that it was at odds with each other. Stacy needed more space and less talking than I did. But that's why I was writing and I needed to be writing anyway.
0: And when did you start writing your journal?
1: I started writing my journal um, about three days after we came home from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really almost immediately after on a daily basis. And you know, Stacy and I both did yoga together. That was a huge thing for us. That we—that was a ritual that we had you together. You hadn't done yoga. Oh, we had. You it had. Just, it just became a daily, yeah, routine. Daily, daily, every day. We'd find a class every day, um, as long as we could. We'd meet after work. I mean, you know, the sad thing about our lives was that we had no more obligations. Now that Greta was gone, mm. we were adults with no children. All of a sudden, if we wanted to meet up for a six thirty yoga class at, on Monday and then go to dinner. Sadly, we had no more, we no had no more reasons no that, that we couldn't do that. And so that was yeah. how we, I think that was also, I mean, practically speaking, probably we did a lot of yoga classes because we needed to fill our time with something. Yeah. But it became a ritual for us both. And we both drew something out of that together. And so we had like this common theme. And then other than that, yeah, Stacy needed different things than I did But I I think I was sort of in a corner with mine and she was in a corner with hers and we would meet, we would meet in the middle occasionally. Mm -hmm. We would talk at night. Um, But mostly we just kind of held on to each other. Um,
0: Like life rafts.
1: Like life rafts. Exactly. I think that's an (laughs) apt image. I do think that's how we sort of felt. Um, You know, I mean, years later now, you know, when we talk about processing, it's almost as if some of those differences reemerged because, you know, not that you're ever done grieving, but you've made it out of the storm, so to speak, and life yeah. feels somewhat more normalized. And then you begin checking notes more more carefully. And you know, well, did you feel this? Well, I didn't feel this. Right. Oh, wow. I didn't realize you felt that. Um, but and really,
0: I, are you ever done grieving?
1: No, of course not. No, it's a right? lifelong thing. No, I mean, and you know, um, it
0: morphs. Probably, it
1: does, and it changes. And uh, one of the phrases I picked up from from um, David Kessler, who is a grief expert in the book, who he is actually the guy who leads the institute, uh, the session at Kerpalo Institute. Um, you know, he he told me, or told I uh, told the group um, that people often. Come to him in grief and say, "When is this grieving going to end?" Mm. And he will say gently, uh, "Well, how long is the person you love going to be dead?" Mm. Um, Whoa, which is an intense thing, but also, <sighs> you know, so you never do stop grieving. But you, you know, I mean, the the the, the redemptive point that he makes is that you can grieve with love. Yeah, um,
0: and you, I picked up that term I used in the introduction of grief and love being synonymous, synonymous. from. You, I probably should have put quotes around it or Mm. given you credit or. No, I didn't make that up.
1: I didn't make it up either. (laughs) It is. I mean, there's another line that I've seen. uh, I've seen uh, um, people use another line that the grief grief is just love with nowhere to go. Um, And, you know, that's just a. Whoa. That's just a truism of the, the grief community. People repeat that to each other, and it, it's a way of reframing your feelings.
0: I had never heard that.
1: Right. It's not just pain, right? That's it's, powerful. It is. It's a powerful thought, and it really does um, connect you to the reason that you're in pain, which is a good reason. It's yes. a good reason, in both in the sense that it's a valid reason and that it, it stems from a good place. Love. stems from love.
0: So tell us about going to the park. Uh, yeah.
1: The yeah. first time. The first time. About 10 days after the accident, um, we had spent most of our time indoors, um, both because that was our natural reaction. It was safe. It was safe. And also because, frankly... um, Greta's accident was very public-facing. There was a newspaper, there you were know, several newspaper reports about it. I mean, it. I
0: remember the articles. She that, was on you the know, front; they were everywhere.
1: They were, and she was in the front. Her picture was on the front page of the Daily News the day we were leaving the hospital, and I saw her uh, yeah, when we yeah, were sneaking yeah. out. You know, it was a Facebook picture that someone had stolen from our wall. Stolen, you know. Technically, yeah. it was there for the taking, but it felt like stealing. Stolen, and um, as a result, we couldn't really go anywhere without people seeing us and being stricken and And i they
0: outside your building and there
1: were reporters in the initial days after yes circling our building um and eventually i went out and gave a statement to them so that they would go away and to their credit they did and i understand that's how reporting works um and but yes we stayed inside for those reasons for other reasons until finally one day i woke up and i said "I, i can't be in here anymore I'm a restless person already, and then we were indoors for days, and we were in an apartment where every single thing in there was was, Greta. Was Greta, exactly, and all her toys and books, and I said, I have to get out of here. No
0: one had taken them out. You didn't take them out.
1: (sighs) That's a whole other story. We did, unfortunately, have to take them out eventually. Um, Yeah. That was a long, yeah, unpleasant, slow, ongoing process of removing the artifacts from our lives that testified to her existence. Yeah. but, in the days after, it was all still there, and um, yeah, and so finally, one day, I had tried to go outside once, way too early, and I was still too raw and in grief, and I basically um, I felt like uh, and I, I think I wrote about this, I felt like an animal that had escaped the zoo. I, ne- yeah. I needed to be collected. I was too traumatized to function, so I went back inside, and so this this time I said, "All right, well, maybe I'll try this again because I wanted to go running. I just desperately needed to move. And so I, I did. I went outside and and I wasn't flooded as as badly by by memories um um or grief. So I, I went for this run and I ran all the way from our apartment to the edge of Prospect Park, which was about a mile. And then I had this queer fit feeling um that I was seeing her um and and that she was just very near. Um and there's no there's no way to explain that. You just say it, you know. Um so I went into the park and I looked around for her. And I saw her. She was there. Um, mm. She stepped up from behind a tree because we used to play this hide and seek game. Did it game. scare you? Not at all. Oh God, I was so 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 happy to see her. Um, I remember I remember my father telling me who is not a particularly spiritual sort. He was a doctor um, and didn't have a lot of patience for, um, you know.
0: That sort of frothy new age yeah. woo woo stuff had yeah. yeah. told me
1: that he saw his father once. Um, so I think it's—I don't think seeing the dead is, especially dead loved ones—is—is—is is, is weird. I think mm-hmm. many people have this or yeah. some version I of can this. Imagine. So no, I wasn't scared at all. I was elated. It was—I mean, she was there. It was my daughter, and um, I ran over to pick her up.
0: Did you have a split second of thinking it was real?
1: Real as in, was she not dead? Yeah. No, okay. I didn't think uh, mm-hmm. for a moment that she wasn't dead. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I, I knew that she wasn't physically there, but she right. was there. And I ran over and I picked her up. I mean, again, this is just, you know, the... Neat,
0: Metaphorical.
1: Yeah, well, but literal in the sense that I was lift... I, if you had watched me in the park, you, you would have, have seen a man raising... running over raising something that only he could see. I mean, this is something yeah. that I did and um, kissed her. Um and then i went for a run and it was my first moment of feeling this sort of exalted powerful feeling um through all the the miserable feelings where oh my god there's this larger sense in which she'll be with me forever Ever. and and you don't you don't take that and the that, love is there and the love is there and it was always going to be there and i felt so exhilarated um for a minute you know for a little while and i but it was such a profound sensation that i think it sort of it was like a breadcrumb along this trail that led me out. You know, it was the first one. It was the first moment yeah. of of true, like, redemptive, powerful grief as opposed to just annihilating terrible, you know, um, painful grief.
0: And when you went home and described it to Stacy,
1: Oh, I don't remember. mm that's a great question. Yeah. Um. There was nothing I told Stacy that she didn't believe. I know that. Yeah. There was yeah. nothing where she balked and said, "Oh, well, that didn't happen." Um. I'm sure I went home and told her, but I don't remember at all. I mean, we were probably just in the same space together. I'm sure she said how beautiful that how was. How fun?
0: How great? Yeah. And,
1: and you know, and uh, and that maybe she said something about, "Oh, I haven't seen her yet," because I think that, um, in the beginning, uh, Stacy had to wait longer for her moment like that than yeah. I did. Than I did.
0: And let's go back to Mm-hmm. So there was a medium at one point who, mm-hmm. who eerily saw people who had died mm-hmm. describe them in detail. Not the kind of vague thing that you think, well, they weren't really getting it wrong. And you and Stacy, in the book, you express a certain frustration. You wanted, you know, like me too. Are you yeah. are, are you seeing Greta? Mm-hmm. But then you write these letters and i think it was david kessler then that was uh listening to it and he observed the amount of anger yeah uh that you had when when he brought that up were you surprised by how much anger you had had you not mm. quite touched that yet
1: i think he was the first person to tell me i knew i was angry mhm but he was the first person to sort of look me in the eye and say you're angry. Um and it was um it was a uh, deeply needed. Yeah, I needed to be I needed to have someone look at me and tell me that so that it could become so it could become more real for me. Um and um so that I could sort of begin to acknowledge that because it was um I would say that rage and anger were the two feelings that I was most consumed by in mm. in the months after. I mean, I I still struggle with the anger portion of it. Um, with anger with anger as an emotion. Period. I mean, I I, I um, had you
0: been would you have considered your a per uh, would you have considered yourself a person that had elements of anger mm. before.
1: Well, I can answer that by saying I wouldn't have considered myself that way, but that by then I probably would have been mistaken and that I had not acknowledged the degree to which I had been angry. Um, I think that what David Kessler did for me was help me acknowledge anger as an emotion. The fact that it was anger at And almost respect it. And yeah, and yeah, and allow it to be felt. Um, and yeah, and and just to acknowledge it, um, it's like if you're sick and you're trying to ignore it, you just get worse, you know, and or if you've got a it's corrosive, if you've got it. Yeah. If you've got a pain in your side and you just kind of walk around like nothing's happening for years, you know, you kind of forget you're miserable all the time. You're miserable all the time. But you no longer remember what the cause of that misery is because you've ignored it for so long. And that's kind of how I felt about Being angry, I had always sort of felt like, oh, if I'm angry, I should probably just figure out a way to deal with that quietly. Because anger, I pack it up. Pack it up. I mean, yeah, exactly. Pack it up. And so what he was teaching me was something far beyond just grief and trauma. I mean, that was the, the the moment, and that that's how the anger expressed itself. And that was most angry about that. But it was sort of this moment where he was like, hey, you have anger. So I'm gonna help you learn to sort of vent that, and so yeah. Then he brought us up. He like pulled us up on the front of the stage, and neither Stacy nor I were comfortable with this. But Stacy, it was like you know pushing her into a wood chipper. You should have seen her face. Um, well, and, and Jason, yeah.
0: one of the one of the one of the one of the reactions I had mm. there, I was like very quickly in Stacy's shoes, <laughs> and I was like Jason. What have you done to mm-hmm. us? We are being called up mm-hmm. in front of these people, asked to do this what might have seemed horrifying experiment. Yes. Yet there you both were.
1: Yet there we both were. <laughs> yeah. And um, was she was she like ready to was she giving you dagger eyes? am n- not dagger eyes. Just panic. I mean, she <laughs> yeah. she knew because again, I mean, when when we rewound that moment. Um, I didn't raise my hand to read my letter. Stacy prodded me and said, you should read your letter. And mm-hmm. so we had sort of stumbled in it. I see. Um, I mean, yes, I felt very guilty. I said, oh, God, you know, so what like, have what 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 I, I conscripted? <laughs> what did I do? You know, I don't want to be here. And oh, my God, you really don't. Yeah. Um, you being the more extroverted of the two of you. Um, I think I'm more comfortable in front of I'm more comfortable in public speaking type situations. I will definitely say that my wife is actually much more extroverted in a. Personal way than I am. I'm. I'm a. I, I need moments of recharging, whereas Stacy does not. But I would say that of the two of us, I'm much more comfortable talking. For, okay. In in a crowd, speaking in front of people, she does not want to be that person. She didn't want to be that person on our own wedding day. She hated the fact that she was the center of everyone's attention. It was stressful to her. So now here she is, and not only is she being asked to sit there, she has to pound a pillow and scream. Um, so you know because I was the person who read the letter David had me go first and he prompts me to uh, to reflect on what makes me angry and um you know and he's prodding me and I'm stuttering because I don't want to be there and finally I come up with something I said I hate happy families mm. and oh god the feeling of 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 realization that how much you hated these happy families. And that it's happy families that you hate. I yeah. mean, what, that this this beautiful thing has now turned into a source of pain for you. What a profound realization. It was depressing for me to think that um, – and also exhilarating because I acknowledged this thing about myself. And and everyone the, no one in the room said, Oh God, that's horrible. What a bad person. <laughs> everyone said, Yeah, I get it. You know, and David Castler was up there yelling, Of course you hate happy families. You don't hate them. You hate the time they have. You hate that they're together and you're not. And like, okay. He made every, you know, made everybody chant along with me while I, I hit the pillow like, on my hands and knees. Chant along. Literally scream it. Yeah. Scream, I uh, hate happy families. And so right. I'm slamming a pillow in front of all these people <laughs> screaming that. And everyone in the room is screaming it with me. And, oh, I mean, I can still feel how that felt. And so um, it was, you know, I felt like every endorphin in your body just starts working at once. And and then uh, so then Stacy had to go. And uh, yeah. so, you know, she is just sort of even more frozen than I was. And he's really prodding her to try and, you know, force an answer out of her. And so she says, I hate old people. <laughs> She's even more mortified than I am because she's like, what What am I going to do with that? I can't go around shouting, I hate old people. And he's like, of course you can. Um, and, you know, again, we know you don't hate old people. You hate that they've lived full lives and Greta did not. Um, there was this added, comp, you know, complication that uh, where Greta died was a senior center and it was a brick mm-hmm. that fell off a senior center. And now Stacey didn't hate the people who lived there, but people who were elderly reminded her of the place where her daughter died. So seeing elderly people was a trigger for her but what came out was I hate old people and instead of judging her for that the entire room again including they were there with her including a lady in the front row with silver hair screaming (laughs) I hate old people Uh, and so we'd become this sort of rally where we were you know we're marching against happy families and the elderly but it was so you know it was funny and I'm saying it that way because it did I mean even in the moment there are people laughing in the room at the absurdity but also the power of it you know like and the freedom and the freedom of it right absolutely
0: because one of the lines that you had in the book, uh, Jason, that um, I think might not happen to everybody mm-hmm. but was um, a powerful idea is that a broken heart can be an open heart.
1: Yeah, that's a really beautiful line that David Kessler um, said and that um, really has resonated for a lot of people I've I've heard. I mean it resonated yeah, for Yeah, I us. can see
0: that. So going back to mm-hmm. uh, Stacy being uncomfortable in front of people, mm. w- one of the characters or people, not characters, mm-hmm. in the book that you, as a reader, are want to hug, in addition to you and Stacy, is Susan.
1: Yes, right? of course. Yes.
0: Why was she on the bench? Why was she on the bench there? What you know? What could right. she have done? It, it, you know, you can't. I can't even mm-hmm. imagine that what that was like. And yeah. at the funeral, mm. share with us what Stacy, to your shock that she even got up there, did. Yeah. And this is so soon.
1: So soon. This and is the, this, so soon. Yeah, the service was the end of the week. We got home. It was that Saturday. So, uh, you know, in, in addition to, you know, um, the emotional weight of the service, it's, yeah. it's, it's also a massive undertaking um, yeah. inquiring all these people to fly in and all these things to be done. I mean, Stacey kind of... It's
0: like a thing. It's an event.
1: Stacy made this sort of bleak joke that it was like a wedding you planned in three days mm. um, because it involved most of the same people. And so there's all this happening around you. And we have tons of people who are mostly doing all the heavy lifting for us. I mean, we, you know, thank God we weren't, you know, yeah. having to do it ourselves. But all this is happening. And so like the night before, all of this is supposed to, you know, you know, the next day is the service. and um, We have decided that we are going to do a Quaker-style ceremony for Greta. And what that specifically means is that after a couple people speak who have been um, chosen to speak. Formally. Formally. The room opens up to whoever feels moved to participate. And I don't know if you have ever been to a Quaker ceremony or if your listeners have. It's very interesting for people who haven't experienced it. Um, dynamic where people sit in silence and there's this moment of waiting and then magically someone always gets up and starts speaking uh, and when they're done they sit back down and uh, per the instructions that come along with this event you're supposed to sit with that a minute and allow it to settle and then somebody else stands up. mm mm-hmm. Now, the first time Stacy and I experienced this Quaker ceremony was at a friend's wedding, and we had never been to one. And we were very anxious about the whole idea of sitting there. Silent. And waiting, you yeah. know. and As a
0: talker, th- those are, like, dangerous for me.
1: They're talker, <laughs> Yeah, we're talkers, too. And, and also, we're, we, we feel the need to not just talk, but to fill silences. Fill, fill, fill silence, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but yet, our experience at our friend's wedding was so moving because it did happen. It did. People just sort of took mm-hmm. turns. And it was this beautiful sort of natural order to the event. And and it gave the this, this ceremony this beautiful feeling of, of a leaderless sort of ceremony. And we loved that. And so that was something we wanted to do for Greta, for her service. We wanted people to feel free to share their experiences. A child's life touches so many people from their daycare providers mm-hmm. to your friends to cousins and aunts and uncles. And your lives. And our lives, of course. But everyone had something they could potentially add by speaking. And, you know, rather than having them sit there and listen to like a, a pastor or a somebody speak, uh, we'd rather hear from them. So I, I I I chose to be one of the people who spoke that was designated. And I I wrote a eulogy for Greta. And in fact a lot of the lines in that eulogy are in the book verbatim, yeah, by the way. I know. Um and I uh it's hard to read. Yeah. But even Without some of the, crying. even some of the language that uh is not in quotes um was stuff that I wrote verbatim and read mm-hmm. out loud. Um I and, can't imagine
0: how you even did it.
1: I mean, Jason. I, I, I the, the words never turned off. That's what I can say about that. But I'll 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 table that point just to get to Stacy for the moment. Um because uh, I was tr- we were trying to talk about this moment where Stacy at the end of this ceremony and I never expected my wife to stand up and i she had said to me you know i don't think i can speak and i said of course we understand no one expects you to do anything and um there's like an hour in which people are standing up and talking and it includes my friends and all these people sharing these memories and we're about to wrap up about we're about to wrap up and then then all of a sudden stacy who's standing who's sitting next to me stands up without saying anything to me and i just i sort of I try to suppress a sort of intake of breath because I'm so surprised. And then she starts talking about her last day with Greta and how um, she feels like, um, she, you know, she took it for granted because, of course, you do. Um, You don't treat that day with any special weight because it's just another one. Um, But that, you know, Stacey and I had, like, argued and it had been not a pleasant sort of morning or afternoon, and she regretted um, parts of that. But the one thing she would never regret was that she was taking Greta to see her grandmother. Right. Um, And at this point, she's turning and talking to her mother, who's there. Um, But her mother is still, A, her legs are still injured from the the bricks that hit her. Yeah. B, I mean, despite being the the father of a child who was killed, um, I still can't imagine um, the depth of Susan's trauma. Because she had to see it, and there's no... There's no imagining that, even for me. Um, So she's there physically, you know. um, But she's, you know, hardly there because she can't be yet. But here's her daughter um, basically turning to her and saying, I'm glad that her last day was with you. Yeah. And um, she said, you know, she had the best day. Mm -hmm. And that was Stacy's way of telling her mother that, you know, she didn't want her to live with this guilt the rest of her yeah. life
0: how magnificent uh,
1: and and uh, how truly um heroic yeah i mean what an act of spiritual heroism heroism what an act of spiritual heroism and truly. generosity yeah to be able to do that as the mother of the child and 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 the, the impulse to do it and the will to follow through i mean it, it you know i feel like i learn a lot about about the kind of person she is but um there are then the, there are these moments where you learn everything at once you know there are these defining moments and for sure that moment was one for me um where i sort of i saw what was in her heart yeah. and that's what she wanted to, to share um,
0: it was very it was very powerful mm. um to see and 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 of course i want everyone to read the book but just mm. to um match that statement Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you and stacy finally did persuade susan to leave the upper west side and move to brooklyn
1: we did we've been working on her for months um and it started with um well it started out because susan was still so traumatized um she lived around the corner from the building that yeah so uh, she had to see it all the time she had to walk past it anywhere she went and we just were saying to her, you know, we really think that you would you would be you would be more peaceful and you'd be having an easier time of your recovery if you weren't around the corner. Yeah. Um. But you know, it's also a lot to ask somebody to move, especially if somewhere they've been for a long time. It's it's a yeah. huge. So she couldn't really contemplate it, and so she was stuck there, sort of mentally, for a while. Um. And when Stacy got pregnant again six months after the accident, and you know, Stacy became pregnant with Harrison. Um, then it became this other conversation about, well, we're going to have your your grandson here. And, you know, there was this implicit understanding, um, even though we never really said it out loud, that we simply couldn't imagine delivering our child to that apartment ever again or bringing them up to that neighborhood ever again. It was the sight of, I mean, I never wanted to see that building. I haven't been back up there ever since. Why would you? Yeah. I mean, um, I had to go up there once or twice after um Greta died to help out Susan and it was just you know it was just horrific to see it and to be there so she kind of understood you know she was going to be alone in some ways um not because we wanted her to be but because we couldn't go there and so over the months she decided of her own accord really um and yeah she relocated she she finally she sold her place and she moved to Brooklyn. Um, to Fort Green, and um, she lives ab- about a mile or so away from us. Um, and she sees Harrison um, about twice a week. She watches him regularly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So we're gonna we're running out of a little bit of time mm. uh, because there's so much to cover. But I I I I want us to get to the decision that you and Stacy made to have a child mm-hmm. again, and. What has surprised you or how hard was that decision to make or was it – did it even feel like a decision? What was it like to get past – have Harrison past the age Mm -hmm. that Greta lived to and Mm -hmm. do you think you are parenting Harrison with the cloud of having lost Greta? That's a lot of questions. That's a lot of questions,
1: but they're all all very important um, for sure. I I don't think we made a decision. The decision we made wasn't whether or not to have another kid. It was when and and how. Um, We knew we wanted to have another child weeks after Greta died, um, which isn't to say we wanted to replace her. We were parents. We wanted to be parents. Be parents. We we were still young. Um, There was, you know— we wanted to raise and care for a child so there was no question in our minds it was a question of when should we do this and when can and and how can we and those were the the questions that guided us i think more than are we going to have a child we knew that this was the path we were going to walk we just didn't know how we'd be able to make it there and sort of as you said arrive at a place where we felt comfortable bringing a, a child into the world that we could give the same sort of world to um that Greta got you know because we, we didn't we didn't want to raise a child under a cloud yeah. um so we um that was what a lot of the grief work to use the phrase um that we did came out of was that this need to um it was almost like a combination of our, our need to honor Greta and our need to get ready for Harrison that sort of spurred on a lot of these, these, these sort of um, trips we took and a lot of these experiences we ended up having yeah. were motivated by that desire. And uh, when, when Harrison was born... Um,
0: Not an easy birth.
1: No, not an easy birth for Stacy. Um, she he was he was eight days overdue. Maybe he was twelve. Oh my God, he was very overdue during what was then the hottest summer ever, and that's now, of course, every new summer. Yeah, but then it was the hottest summer ever, hot, hottest summer ever, and he was supposed to be born in the middle of August, and he was not. And every single day. Oy. We kept thinking what gives, you know, and it felt like some weird cosmic holdup was happening. Like, okay, what? It's almost like there was someone hitting a pause button waiting for us to figure it out. Like, or say what, something. What do we have to do that we haven't done to allow this child to be born? It really felt like a weird sort of problem. Cosmic like thing. Cosmic problem. Um and so, you know, uh, in, in the end, um, I mean, we, we did all these things. I mean, there's this gruesome passage in the book. I mean, I, I hope it's not just gruesome, but I even writing it, I, I felt... Um It was true, so it had to go in the book, but uh, one of the things that we decided to do was to transfer Greta's ashes into her urn, which we had Mm. not done. It was sort of the last act It
0: wasn't gruesome, Jason. I'm glad to
1: hear that, because it felt gruesome to me to be sharing it on some level, and out of all the passages in the book... It felt complete. That one was the hardest one for me to, to write, and that might sound surprising. It was harder to me to write that than it was to write even the details of her accident, because transferring her ashes to the urn felt so exquisitely private um Mm -hmm. and and those are the details of her body that's all that's left of her yeah and but we had to do that we decided that's the one thing that we had not done and somehow that when we had done that um because we've been carrying her around with us that it would allow harrison to come in um the punchline is no it didn't and stacy drank castor oil (laughs) that's the punchline to that story um which induced labor um and uh, you shout-out to all the midwives out there who recommend that. I can tell you that it works firsthand. Uh, from the minute that Stacey said, I think this might be doing something, to the minute that Harrison was in her arms, it was five hours. So it was very, very sh- uh, short um, but when he was by I, I went into shock briefly, where there's a moment where we were driving in an ambulance up to the hospital and it reminded me simultaneously of Greta's birth and Greta's death and then, you know, it same was same hospital. Um no, not the same hospital that um no. But yeah. um but we did end up taking Harrison back to that hospital. Um, in a separate story but no when she when 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 Harrison was born it was to a new hospital but still the the, the details were all so vivid Similar. and familiar seeing her you know seeing like seeing us rushed by paramedics even you know once we got there I mean that just brought back this image of being ushered into the ER to see Greta and so I went briefly into shock yeah. um, but, you know but then you know I got up there into the room and slowly reality kind of started to put itself back together and Stacy's labor was progressing and I was kind of pulled out but the whole time that we were there in that moment I kind of felt like I was going into this weird spot where where Harrison was was sort of also where Greta was it was the only time they were ever going to be in, in the, the same place the same plane of existence the same place and I kind of felt like wherever we were going she was going to be sort of there um, and I've talked to people, I talked to a woman named hmm. Carrie Ad Lloyd, who does a, um, another podcast called Griefcast, And she talked about when she was giving birth to her child that she never grieved her father more. It was so similar. And I think because there's this profundity to both the birth experience and the death experience and that they are so fundamentally linked. And um, so when Harrison was born, it, it kind of felt like witchy and spiritual in a way that Greta's birth did not. Uh, it had this other layer of dimensionality yeah. to it where it was like we were communing with the dead as we were welcoming the, the, the living. Um, and I think that some of that feeling followed us into the first weeks of his life. And I remember looking around and thinking, did we do all this again? Am I dreaming There's an aspect of it that was so profoundly uncanny and deja vu-like that it didn't...
0: Like an alternate universe? It
1: was that exactly. Yes, it was a feeling I had where we had entered an alternate timeline of our own lives, and here was our alternate timeline child. Not a replacement child, but an alternate timeline child. And I was confused. I think we we found it confusing as new parents. Um, But, you know, day by day, that confusion just starts to clear. The person in front of you emerges... And the past he's eventually, his he's person. his own person. And he's a different kind of kid. He's a different kind of kid. Temperamentally. He absolutely is. and But I, I think that as, as Harrison emerged from that place and became more of a person, all of those worries we had became so... Um, a theoretical because yeah. raising a child, I mean, what what children do is they sort of they smash all your theories about who you are and how you're going to react.
0: It's the wonderful thing about them, it's the right? wonderful
1: and, and and sometimes frustrating yeah. beauty of parenting is that whatever you thought you were going to do, they got this, another plan. This person has another plan. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so in a way, it was almost comical to me in, in hindsight that we worried so much about the world we were going to give to Harrison because Harrison's experiencing the world and he's kind of tugging us along for the ride. I mean, he's got his own yeah. his own way. He's gonna go. Yeah, there are he does, and there are moments I think that we are approaching where there will be an inflection point. We have to teach him some things, and we have to explain to him, as every parent does, about death. Unfortunately, when we tell him about death, it's going to be so much closer to home. He's gonna have to understand something that many kids do not, or if not understand, then hear. I don't know what understanding means looks like for a, a young child. Yeah. Um, but he knows the name he Greta. He has to.
0: Add it to his reality. Mm-hmm. Right. He has to add both it.
1: the existence of a sister and the fact that she died. I mean, there's a lot there, and it's not something you learn all at once. And so I think there's still a part of us that's waiting for that information to become that's like to us the final piece of this life that we have not lived. This piece of having a child after Greta is. This, I mean, I, don't, I think that once we probably do that, we'll discover, oh, there are more steps along this process. But to us, right. it feels like this great threshold that we have yet to cross. And you mentioned earlier, it intrigues me, you mentioned very perceptively like, how it felt to have Harrison live past the age of Greta, because that also felt like this grand and terrible threshold. Um, and I didn't know what day it was. Um,
0: mm. I, I think
1: I had maybe made a point, not even maybe, I had definitely made a point, a uh, real point of not adding up the weeks in my head so that I would not know when I woke up on the day, today, Harrison is one day older. Because whatever day it was, I'd have stuff to do and I'd have Harrison with me. And I didn't I didn't and know. And there's life. And there's life. However, everyone else in my life had done that at had math, um, including my wife and, and my mother-in-law. Precisely. And I was supposed to bring him over to his mother-in-law, and that's how I found out, because she said, listen, Jason, I'm sorry, but I don't think I can... I'm more triggered by this day than I thought. Um... I was in a doctor's office when I got that message with Harrison for a a routine physical. And I had just been told that, oh, you also have to draw blood. And for a toddler, that means you hold them down while someone jabs a needle into them. And this person that they trusted, which is you, is like, you know, letting another stranger hurt them. And so I'm sitting there thinking already, oh God, can I please not do this? And then I got that text and it felt like permission from the universe. I was like, okay, we're leaving now. Um yeah but in uh, in all the respects and i and I don't know. I mean, I probably was sad and confused that week for a few days, but it, it's such a funny feeling in 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 the in the grander scheme, like this these feelings of grief. they kind of come they're like clouds they- cl- they're like cloud like yeah, they hover for a few days, and nothing feels realer to you in the moment than those feelings, and then, just as mysteriously, you do not feel them anymore, yeah. And it defies your sort of rational understanding of what this stuff's supposed to feel like, you know? And that's why when people give you grief counseling, they tell you grief comes in waves. Um, Because it is sort of this process that just sort of washes up on you and then washes out. You know, I didn't, probably two days later, have any sort of grand thoughts about the fact that he'd lived longer. Mm -hmm. It was over.
0: So, Jason, as we close... Share with us the message you wanted by picking this title.
1: Yeah. um, The title was very important to me. Um, I wanted – because we were undertaking this journey. um, We weren't trying to linger in hell. (laughs) Um, And uh, there are stories in which the message is, I am in hell. Those are powerful stories. Uh, in their own own right. But that was not the story of our lives. That was not the Mm -hmm. story. And so when I was picking a title, when we were together talking about what title this could be, I was trying to think about grand journeys. And, I mean, the inferno eventually came to my mind. And I remembered in a dark wood, the first line. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, maybe that's... Maybe that's a metaphor for the 15 months, you know, brilliantly original thought, of course, you know. But I had this thought. Maybe that that's a a powerful framework.
0: But a book was coming out with that title about then. right? That's so
1: funny because I didn't know about it then, (laughs) right? That's so weird. And then someone said, oh, well, you know, there's this Reese Witherspoon-picked book called In the Dark, Dark Wood. And I said, oh, well, scratch that. Okay. And we kept moving. But that was sort of, I mean, so I arrived at the inferno before I arrived at the title is why I say that. Because I, I knew that there was something in that journey. The fact that it was this arduous journey. I mean, nothing's more arduous than the divine comedy. It goes on and on and on, um, you know, often beautifully, but it is the definition of but it's a, still long. <laughs> the weighty tome that, you know, you feel like you have passed through hell and then purgatory and then heaven yourself. The right?
0: reading mimics the
1: reading mimics very much <laughs> the, so. The text. Well, and that's a joke, but also there's something real. There's something real there as well. This sensation of earned weight. You want to get out of hell? Yeah. Start at the bottom circle, buddy, and work your way up. OK, you know? sport. <laughs> yeah. Start at the bottom, you know. And so and I, so anyway, that sent me running back to the text and stacy and i were sitting there and i was flipping through this translation we had that i'd probably never opened since college you know i'm flipping through it trying to find and stacy's on the computer and she's just looking up phrases and she was like like googling quotes i mean essentially right you know i have the copy of the book and so she's trying to work and she's looking on a computer and she's because in, in a dark wood were the first lines. she's like those are the first lines right what are the last lines mm. And that's when, I, you know, sh- we flipped to it and, and, sh- and read it. And then we both said, whoa. Um, because once more, I mean, it's all implied there.
0: Yeah. Um, all went, of it.
1: You went somewhere lightless for a while. Um, you were gone. We were gone. We were away from the reach of the stars. And then once more, we saw them. Um, and it also doesn't imply... I mean, the great thing about that quote, and I, I, I've I've repeated this a bit because it's just so meaningful to me. Um, what's so beautiful about that quote is that as the, the, the inferno ends, they're not even out of hell. Yeah. They're still it's in. It's a glimpse. It's a glimpse. They can see it through a tiny keyhole. <laughs> yeah. And I just felt like that was so apt, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... I don't know that you ever do in real life. It's the possibility. It's the possibility. And the existence of the possibility is all most people ever really need to keep going. And that's all you ever really get, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we didn't get to a bunch of the questions, but I want to close with this because I was very struck in reading the book. So this is something you've said Mm -hmm. in an interview. Uh, You said that the critics you admire are people who can accurately describe the sensation that works of art stir in you. Mm. And when you write about art, you write about something that moves you, applying the analytic mind to the wordless realm of emotion. Mm. And I can't imagine a book, Jason, that takes such a sad event and shares it with the reader in the way that we learn. We experience it with you, and we come away learning. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you for
0: your time. This is Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody. I've been talking with Jason Green, the author of Once We Saw More Stars, a memoir. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Just the Right Book or LitHub Radio.